Hello and welcome to Christianese. I'm your host, Drew Fitzgerald, and today I want to talk about something that we all presume to be true, that there is a conflict between faith and science, that the two are nearly irreconcilable. You only have to look at the way the church treated Galileo or hear the way that Richard Dawkins talks about science and faith to see that this conflict is very real. But what if I told you that this conflict was as thin as an ugly coat of paint? And when you scratch beneath it, you find that the campaign to drive a wedge between the two is actually pretty recent. That faith gives morality and meaning to science, and science can enrich our understanding and spiritual lives. What if I told you that the relationship between science and faith is beautiful? To round out season three of Christianese, faith versus science. When I was a teenager, I was told to be wary of science. I was led to believe it was a kind of gateway drug to atheism and that the scientific community was full of people hostile towards Christianity. And those ideas were confirmed when I heard atheists like Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, and Sam Harris talk about faith and science. Listening to them speak, you would think that science has long ago proved that all religions are false, that faith and reason have no business sitting in the same room, that if you were just brave enough to look at the data, you would see that there is no God. It's not terribly surprising that our response to this aggressive new atheism has been for us to become more skeptical of science. Now, this skepticism isn't us investigating scientific claims and refuting it based on data or different observations, but rejecting the data out of hand because we feel that it is threatening our faith. We're skeptical or reject findings on everything from the age of the earth to climate change. Right now, Christians are the least likely group of people in America to receive the COVID vaccine. To say that Christians today, in 2021, have a strained relationship with science is the understatement of the year. Even so, and this is going to sound contradictory, there is not a conflict between faith and science. In order to believe that there is a conflict between the two, you have to ignore history, buy into the false conflict thesis, and then completely ignore epistemology. So in this episode, we're going to look at history. We're going to examine the conflict thesis. We're going to dip our toes into epistemology. And then, at the end, talk about how Christians should approach science. Let's start with history. It is generally believed that the church has stood against scientific investigation for as long as it's been around that ever since Galileo posited that the Earth orbited the Sun, the Church has been against new discovery. Now this is simply untrue on the face of it because before Galileo, the Church did not have a history of opposing mathematicians, astronomers, or anyone that we would consider a scientist. Galileo Galilei, though, did cause a serious stir with the way that he promoted Copernicus's theory of heliocentrism that the sun is the fixed center of the universe. 
Before this, the church and most of the Western world accepted Aristotle's view, geocentrism, that the earth was the fixed center of the universe. The church had considered Copernicus's view during the Council of Trent, but found that it was both wanting of evidence and seemed to contradict scripture, particularly the story in Joshua where God makes the sun stand still. How can God make something stand still if it's not moving? The church felt the case was closed, but 70 years later, Galileo comes along and makes the theory of heliocentrism broadly popular, most notably through his letter to the Grand Duchess Christina Lorraine. In this letter, Galileo used scripture to defend heliocentrism, reinterpreting it from the church's official stance to one that fit his theory. Now you have to remember that Galileo was living in the wake of the Protestant Reformation, and the church was uniquely wary to lay people reinterpreting scripture to fit their own views. By using scripture, Galileo was not making a scientific argument for heliocentrism, but a theological argument. And after being told by the church to cut it out, Galileo doubled down and expanded this letter from eight pages to 40 pages. This expanded letter went even deeper into scripture, making a more robust theological argument against the church while politically challenging their authority. Galileo was put on trial and confessed that the heliocentric view was heretical, promising that he would never teach it again, and if he did, that he would be a relapsed heretic. Sixteen years later, there was a new pope, Pope Urban VIII, who was a personal friend and supporter of Galileo's, and he offered Galileo an olive branch. Pope Urban VIII sanctioned Galileo to write a dialogue between the geocentric and heliocentric models, but he made Galileo promise, under oath, that this dialogue would not be biased, that Galileo would be fair to both viewpoints, and argue his position based on evidence alone. Galileo agreed to this and swore to the conditions, but his resulting work, dialogue concerning the two chief world systems, was anything but unbiased. The character that Galileo used to represent geocentrism looked and sounded an awful lot like the Pope, and his name was Simplicio, which roughly translates to the simpleton. And while I may not know much about Catholicism, I do know that if a Pope offers you an olive branch, you don't turn around and call him an idiot. After publishing this dialogue, Galileo was rightly convicted of breaking his oath to the Pope, and was sentenced to spend the rest of his life under house arrest. Galileo's favored view of the universe did bring him into conflict with the church, but he was hardly a martyr persecuted for his ideas. If anything, he pushed and prodded the church until conflict was unavoidable. He then squandered a chance to make a reasoned argument for his viewpoint. In other words, to do science. Galileo is not an archetype of the persecuted scientist. If anything, he's an exception to the rule in the way that the church treated some of the brightest minds in Western history. Both Augustine and Thomas Aquinas believed that the intellect was a gift from God, and that using our intellect to investigate the world around us was an expression of the Imago Dei. The fact that nature is a self-operating system encouraged many medieval scientists to investigate the natural world, because Romans 1.20 God's invisible qualities are on display through what he has made. But it wasn't just that Christians felt encouraged to be scientific. 
They made some of the biggest contributions to modern science. Men like Isaac Newton, Francis Bacon, Lord Kelvin, Gregor Mendel, Blaise Pascal, Michael Faraday. All of these men claimed Christ. And there are literally hundreds of others who make profound contributions to their specific scientific fields who were Christians. History does not teach us that there's a conflict between faith and science. And if you look around today, you'll notice Christians in every scientific field. If Christianity is incompatible with science, someone has forgotten to tell the scientists. Well, if that's the case, then why are we so certain today that Christianity and science don't fit together? Andrew Dixon White was the president and co-founder of Cornell University, the only Ivy League school to have been founded without denominational partnership. He and Ezra Cornell sought to create a university unencumbered by religion. But this university was having to compete with religious organizations for New York State grant money. And so he set out to paint his university as the forward-thinking university, whereas those religious institutions with clerics in their science department, well, they were just destroying science with their religiosity. In 1869, he delivered a lecture called The Battlefields of Science, in which he said, I propose then to present to you this evening an outline of the great sacred struggle for the liberty of science, a struggle which has been going on for many centuries. A war continued longer, with battles fiercer, sieges more persistent, with strategy more vigorous than any of the comparatively petty warfares of Alexander or Caesar or Napoleon. In all modern history, interference with science and the supposed interest of religion has resulted in the direst evils to both religion and science. Seven years later, he published this lecture, expanded to an 800-page tome detailing the supposed war between science and religion. In 1874, White's campaign was joined by John William Draper, professor of chemistry at the University of New York. Draper wrote a book called History of Conflict Between Religion and Science, in which he says, the antagonism we thus witness between religion and science is the continuation of a struggle that commenced when Christianity began to attain political power. The history of science is not a mere record of isolated discoveries. It's a narrative of the conflict of two contending powers, the expansive force of the human intellect on one side and the compression rising from traditionary faith and human interests on the other. Both White and Draper's work had profound impacts on the scientific culture. And though you may not know their names, they are the reason that we still believe there's a conflict between science and Christianity. White later said that the reason for writing his book was to get back at the enemies of Cornell University, those denominational Christians who challenged the foundation of his school. Draper was a part of a much larger social movement to professionalize the sciences. The term scientist did not exist until the 1830s, after which point there was a pretty serious conflict about whether or not scientists should be paid for their work. Most of those in universities felt that being paid to be a scientist necessarily tainted the work that you were trying to do. They were afraid it would make your results biased. Draper was changing the conversation. Instead of making it about money, he directed the war towards clergymen, 
attempting to discredit them as suitable figures to undertake scientific work. According to historian Timothy Larson, the major problem that Draper had with clergymen is that they were undertaking scientific work for the sheer love of it, and quote, thus hindering the expectation that it would be done for money by paid full-time scientists. Clergymen were branded amateurs in order to facilitate the creation of a new category of professionals, end quote. Today, the works that founded the conflict thesis are considered historically inaccurate and completely untrue. Even so, 150 years later, everyone just assumes that there is an intrinsic war between faith and science. And this assumption is reinforced by the so-called New Atheists, a group of atheists who believe that religion is not only untrue, but unhelpful to society, and have taken a strong anti-religion stance. In their eyes, religion is not just something you shouldn't believe, it's something that you shouldn't respect. This is clear even in the titles of their books, like Sam Harris's The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. Christopher Hitchens' God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. Victor Stinger's God, The Failed Hypothesis, How Science Shows That God Does Not Exist. And God in the Folly of Faith, The Incompatibility of Science and Religion or Jerry Coyne's Faith First Fact, Why Science and Religion Are Incompatible. Atheist finding fault between science and religion is nothing new, but what is new about these new atheists is their scientism. That is the belief that the hard sciences like chemistry, biology, physics, and anatomy provide the only genuine knowledge of reality. And since they believe that science is in an essential conflict with religion, well then, religion must be against knowledge. This results in quotes from Richard Dawkins like, I'm against religion because it teaches us to be satisfied with not understanding the world. Or, religion is about turning untested belief into unshakable truth through the power of institutions and the passage of time. I have no reason to doubt the convictions of these new atheists or their intelligence. All of these guys are brilliant in their own fields, it's just that philosophy is not one of them. New atheism holds that if you can't prove something empirically, then it should not be believed. And that if you believe something that cannot be empirically proven, you are worthy of ridicule. However, all of the beliefs that the new atheists were demanding were true cannot be empirically proven. And because they completely ignored epistemology, they were roundly ridiculed by both scientists and philosophers. But what is epistemology? Glad you asked. Epistemology is the philosophical study of knowledge. How do we know something is true? What differentiates a justified belief from an opinion? What are the sources of knowledge and how much can we actually know? Now that may already sound pretty heavy and mind-bendy, but hang with me. What can science actually teach us? What are the limits of what we know when we simply look at science? Well, science is the empirical investigation of reality. In order to do science, a person has to make a hypothesis or an educated guess about something they can observe. Then they test or observe that thing, record data, and make a conclusion based on the data that they recorded. Therefore, science can know a lot about the inner workings of atoms, the social structures of primates, 
the way that specific molecules interact with one another, the physics of a fastball thrown by a major league pitcher. This data can even be used to make inferences on things like what the universe was like a trillionth of a second after it was formed. The things that we can learn from science are incredible. They push the boundaries of what we think are possible. Science has taken man to the moon and put supercomputers in our pockets. It's given us technology that to the past looked like science fiction, fantasy, or magic. But there are limits to what science can teach us. Because science can only show us verifiable facts, things that we can test and quantify, it can never tell us how to use the knowledge it gives us. Science is very good at what, what is, what has been, and what might happen. But it can never tell us why things happen, or what we should do. For example, evolutionary science might tell us that one man kills another in order to heighten the chances that his genes move forward into future generations. But it can't tell us why killing someone is wrong. Science can teach us how to split an atom, but it can't tell us whether or not we should turn that knowledge into an atomic bomb. Science can help us bring dinosaurs back to life. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. A new atheist can tell us that science is the only source of knowledge in the universe, but he can't give us scientific reasons for why that is true. The scope of knowledge that science can give to us is limited to what we can empirically observe. But we cannot empirically observe morality, human dignity, purpose, beauty, free will, or even consciousness. Because science is limited, it must stand alongside and even be subjugated to those things that it cannot empirically observe. We have to observe science through a moral lens so that we might know what we should do with the information that it gives us. The scientism of the new atheist can't do that. If a new atheist tells you that science is the only source of knowledge, simply ask them how they know that's true. It's not a scientifically verifiable claim. Despite the volume and popularity of the new atheists, their claim that science is necessarily in conflict with faith ring hollow. Because you can't believe that science is the only way without having to believe that it's the only way. The philosophies of religion and scientism may be in conflict, but faith and science, they work hand in hand. Faith gives meaning and purpose to science. And scientific inquiry is a means by which you can exercise your intellect as a person made in the image of God appreciate his handiwork, and support human flourishing. In ancient Greece, those who observed the earth and the stars and tried to understand their movements realized that there was an underlying logic behind all created things. And they didn't know what this underlying logic was, so they simply called it the Logos. John chapter 1 says Jesus is the Logos. The Word, that He was in the beginning and all things were created by Him. And Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in Him 
all things hold together. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim His handiwork. And Romans 1.20 says that since the beginning of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen in what has been made. When Christians engage in science, using the intellect that God gave them as those made in His image, we won't find threats. We'll find reason to worship. We'll find new vistas from which we can gaze upon His invisible attributes. And you know what's astonishing about this? As we do this, and gain knowledge about the world that he's created, we have found the knowledge and innovated to create new technologies that cure diseases, clean water, increase the yield of crops. By simply gazing upon his artwork, God has blessed us. Science is a means for us to love the Lord our God with our whole mind, our whole being, and all of our strength and it gives us new ways to love our neighbors as ourselves. Christianity and science, a match made in heaven. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of Christianese. In this episode, I bit off way more than I can chew, and so I have a couple of book recommendations if you want to go more deeply into the issue of faith and science. Rebecca McLaughlin's Confronting Christianity is a fantastic book. It touches on way more than faith and science, but has a really great chapter on that. Tim Keller's Reason for God is excellent. Read the whole thing. And if you want to go a little bit deeper into the philosophical side of things, Alvin Plantinga's Where the Conflict Really Lies is perfect for this topic. And if you want to do some more reading on all sorts of things having to do with the Christian life, check out fathommag.com, who produced this podcast. And if you have a second, leave a like or review. Or hey, don't, no pressure, whatever. Thanks, everybody.